Chapter 1, Part 2 We rejoin Rini on her first train journey in India. She shivered involuntarily at the remembrance of the excitement of the day she had arrived in India. By now the train was rattling along through fields of fresh rice, rimmed with banana trees and a bewildering blur of palmera palms flashing past her window. Something about that green landscape gave her another tingle of excitement. Did it remind her of something way back in her childhood? Another train journey? She couldn't quite locate it, but another, li another excited shiver brought a tear to her eye and a small smile, and somehow she knew it was all going to be wonderfully all right. Her kind travelling companions, noticing her emotion but not party to the thoughts behind it, broke into her thoughts. Don't worry, dear. It won't be long now. Capoli is only about another thirty minutes. Your husband will be able to join you there. Where are you headed? Rini didn't really want to enter into conversation, but she replied, uh, We're going to Ludiana. Cor, no wonder you're worried, interjected the younger man. That's a heck of a long way. Do you live there? Rini was not sure how much to say. My husband's a doctor. He's been working up in the mountains of Kashmir. Oh, beautiful place, Kashmir. Wouldn't mind being posted there. You've been there long? Again, Rini hesitated. The older man interjected. It's okay, my dear. You carry on reading. John, that's his name, isn't it? She nodded. He'll be with us soon, and we can introduce ourselves properly then. She gave him a grateful smile and dropped her eyes to her New Testament, still open at the same page on her lap. Her eyes wandered over the page, and then the scenes of the last three days came hurtling back into her mind. There she was at the dock on that damp September morning. True to the purser's promise, she had spotted her large cabin trunk with its rounded top in a pile of trunks and boxes in the customs shed. With some relief, she noted that it looked fully intact, despite its, its hazardous flight from ship to dock. The two girls had waited patiently in the queue at the customs desk. Winifred had spotted one of her trunks as well, much to their mutual relief. Rini could not help wondering where John was. Would he be able to come into the customer's shed and help them? Had he even arrived in Bombay? She'd not heard from him since a week before leaving England. That was over five weeks ago. He had told her in that letter that he was about to leave the village he lived in and walk to Srinagar, then take buses and trains to Bombay. He said the journey would take him over a month. Would he have even arrived in Bombay yet? Had he been delayed or missed his train? Could he have got ill or had an accident? All these thoughts had raced through her mind as she stood, as she stood in that queue. The custom shed was already unbearably hot, although it was only about eleven in the morning. Many of the passengers seemed to have special privileges and ignored the queues, Reading really assumed they were either first-class passengers or in government or something. 
but at last the queue shrunk to a few single women, obviously in India for the first time, and she and her friend were the very last to check their papers and passports through customs. She remembered looking around, expecting to see John, and for a brief few seconds she thought she and Winifred would have to negotiate coolie and transport, but then a young Anglo-Indian man approached them, wearing the distinctive blue and yellow of Thomas Cook, and asked if either of them were Irene New. "'Oh, yes, that's me!' she remembers exclaiming. The young man had then announced, "'Dr. John Gilbert is waiting for you in, your, in our office.' A flutter had leapt through her body on hearing his name. A flush came to her cheeks, and she must have given a little gasp as Winifred had laughed and dug her in the ribs, saying, "'There you are, my girl. Your man is here to collect you.' They were led out of the customs shed, and despite her anticipation, she remembered hesitating, pointing back at her trunk and saying, "'But but what about the trunks?' That wedding dress was not going to escape at the last minute, having come halfway round the world. The man had assured her that Thomas Cook would be taking full charge of that, and so, with Winifred's reassurance, she hurried on to the office where her beloved awaited her. The next few moments would etch themselves in her memory forever. They were ushered into a small office with just one desk, over which a fan slowly rotated, making a harsh rhythm of squeals and squeaks. A large Anglo-Indian man sat facing them, talking to a young man in a beige jacket who had his back to them. As they entered, he turned. It was John. He jumped up and came towards them, grinning. He was deeply weathered and brown and looked so much older than when she'd last seen him 18 months earlier, when she'd waved goodbye to him her fresh-faced, studious-looking, bespeckled fiancé. <laughs> she giggled to herself at the, as she remembered how embarrassed they had both been in that small office, not sure whether to rush into each other's arms, hug, shake hands, kiss, or what. Winifred had laughed. Go on, Reenie, give him a kiss. Tomorrow he's going to be your husband. Well, that broke the ice the other two Thomas Cook men joined in the congratulations, clapping and chanting, "'They're going to be married in the morning!' It was all a bit too much for Rini. Suddenly all the tension of the last eighteen months dissolved, and she found herself both crying and laughing as she looked at her John and realised how much she loved him and was longing to spend the rest of her days with him. Well, there was no time to dwell on that now. Winifred, always the practical one, chivied them along. Come on, Dr. John, we have a lot to do before tomorrow. Let's get going where we're to where we're staying. Quickly the Thomas Cook men jumped to their business, and the younger man went off to organise the luggage, while the older man picked up a sheaf of papers, handed them to John, and then led them all outside through a back door, which led straight out into a busy street. Once more the noise, smell, and heat of the city blanketed Rini and making her gasp. But this time she had John's arm nearby, and she quickly grasped it and hung on tightly as they made their way 
over the few small puddles left from the morning rain towards a line of horse-drawn carriages. She remembered they looked rather worse for wear, not a bit like her pony back in Oxford in England. Sensing what she was thinking, John apologised for the carriage and bedraggled horse as he ushered her into the first carriage in the line. She climbed in, carefully holding her dress from touching the step of the, or the sides and settled on one of the front-facing seats. Winifred clambered in after her, thoughtfully occupying the one opposite, leaving a space for John beside Rini. "'Well, my girl,' she joked, "'this will make a fine wedding carriage.' Rini was about to laugh with her before realising that this might well be their wedding carriage. "'Oh, my goodness, will this really be our wedding carriage?' she, she inquired. Not quite sure how to say it, and glad that John was not in earshot, having disappeared behind the baggage, no doubt salting the luggage. A sudden flashback took her to Manor Lodge in Otford in Kent, England, and the small pony and trap they kept before they owned a car. Every weekday morning, Rini would rise early and lead the pony round from the back paddock and attach her to the small two-wheeled trap kept in the stable-yard. She would tighten the straps and give the pony a palmful of oats while she waited for her father to come out of the front door of the house, shout a cheery goodbye to those inside and clamber into the trap. His heavy bulk would weigh the trap down on one side and Rini, saying a few calming words to the pony, would climb in the other side and off they would trot to the station. She loved those few moments with her father each morning. It was only fifteen minutes, but it was a precious father and daughter time just for them. Later on, when she joined her father in his office, travelling up to London with him every day, they had to employ a young stable lad to drive them back, both to the station and to collect them in the evening, and somehow the intimacy of earlier days was lost. Those precious minutes, once in the morning and then in the evening, did not last long, but they seared precious memories into Rini's mind, and somehow here in India they gave an inexplicable calm, only to be suddenly jolted back to reality as Winifred burst out laughing. No, my dear, this is not a wedding carriage. It's a taxi. You won't need a carriage. As I understand it, we'll be staying where the wedding will be held. Weenie realised that she had hardly thought about what the wedding arrangements would be. She gladly left that all to John. Her only thoughts had been about her wedding dress and walking down the aisle and then being with John always. She was suddenly rather confused. Everything seemed to be swimming around in a bit of a whirl. Everything was just so different to what she'd imagined. All the pictures she'd seen of India had been the ones John had sent, and they were of the wild, lonely mountains and people of the far Himalayan north. This huge city with its crowd and smells and horse-drawn taxis and heat was just not part of all she was expecting. She began to feel faint and found herself rubbing her hands together on her lap, then fumbling for a handkerchief in her handbag. Thankfully, before she could get too wound up, 
John had appeared again and was climbing into the carriage and sitting down beside her. At last that's all sorted. Now we should be off. We're going to stay in Woodhouse Road with the Mrs. Gordons. The younger Thomas Cookman jumped in and the taxi trotted off with a very relieved bride to be at last seated more comfortably than expected beside her man. As he moved off, John explained that they were going to stay with the Miss Gordons in their guesthouse and that they would get married there in the same guesthouse tomorrow. That all sounded really exciting, but also a bit alarming, but its firm announcement by her John quietened the rising panic she had begun that had begun to raise its head a few minutes earlier. The horse-drawn taxi ride from the dock to the guesthouse seemed interminable to Rini. In fact, it was only a, a little over a mile. After leaving the Ballard estate, they joined the busy foreshore road, leading past the Mint and Reserve Bank of India, and past Horniman Circle, flanked on one side by the massive bank of steps up to the Asiatic Library. Winifred knew more about Bombay than John, so was pleased to take up a sort of running commentary as the carriage made its way through the busy streets. The steps, she said, of the Asiatic Library were apparently a well-known meeting place for the impoverished students at the university who could not afford the cafes around, the cafes around Flora Fountain. But on this day they were almost empty because of the rain earlier. On the other side of Horniman Circle, Winifred pointed out the Anglican Cathedral. Rini was amazed to see such a small church being called a cathedral. But it did look very pretty amongst the trees around it, especially in contrast to the tall Victorian office buildings completing the rest of the circle. In fact, as they travelled further down Foreshore Road to Regal Circle, Rini seemed to stop listening to Winifred, but she could not help herself compare the tall canyons of high Victorian buildings here in the Fort of Bombay to the city of London, where she worked after leaving school. She travelled to London every day to work as an accounts clerk in her father's meat-importing firm at Smithfield Market. From Blackfriars Station she would walk up Blackfriars Lane, past the Old Bailey and St Bart's Hospital, and back down again in the evening to catch the train to Otford. The familiarity of these old, stately city buildings in London, replicated here 5,000 miles to the east in, England, in England's colonial financial centre of Bombay, brought a smile to her lips and a sense of homeliness that eased her earlier worries. She had so enjoyed those few months commuting to London every day and being reminded of them, even bizarrely by buildings in a city like Bombay, gave her a comfortable reassurance that India was not going to be too far outside her ken. She was going to be able to manage. Regal Circle was a complete model of horse-drawn carriages, cars, coolies, and of all things, London double-decker buses. Everyone seemed to be hooting or shouting or pumping away on their pom-poms horns. A couple of policemen were waving sticks around, but it did not seem to make much difference. She remembered to thinking how marvellously chaotic it was and how un-English. As they gradually edged through the maelstrom, a majestic tall building caught her eye, obviously quite recently built. Looking closer, 
closer, she was surprised to discover it was the, it was the regal cinema. As she quickly looked away, not expecting to be confronted with such a sin house in India, all her life she had been taught that cinemas were the playhouse of the devil. On the ship coming out, she had assiduously avoided the film nights in the ship's dining hall. She and Winifred had stayed in their cabin. The sight now cast a shadow of her enjoyment of the moment, but only for a moment, as they were now tropping, trotting down a leafy tree-lined avenue called Woodhouse Road. It was beautifully cool, under the shade of the lovely trees each side, and she was thrilled to hear John say that they would be staying in one of the mansions on this road. Within minutes the carriage had drawn up at Raffia Manzel. She remembered thinking what a stately mansion it was, five stories high and painted white. The monsoon had streaked the whitewash in several places, but that somehow seemed to add to its grandeur, making it blend into the trees and shrubs growing at its entrance. They had obviously been expected, as two liveried servants quickly emerged and welcomed them in, insisting on even carrying their parasols for them. Rini tried to hang on to her handbag in which she had her passport and money, but no, even that was gently eased out of her hand by a smiling young man. She watched helplessly, daring not to object. Yet an inner excitement told her that it was all going to be all right. John was here. And sure enough, within a few minutes she arrived with John at the room where she and Winifred were to stay, and there on the table was her handbag. Involuntarily now, back on the train, she grasped her handbag tighter to her as the train rattled on through flooded paddy, paddy fields. Her two companions were resting on the two bunks across the compartment. The older man had introduced himself as Ron, and that was all she knew about him. He lifted himself off the bunk in seeing her stirring and said, "'Well, my dear, looks as if we'll soon be at Capoli.' You will soon have your husband with you. And he smiled across at her reassuringly. Sure enough, within a minute or two she heard the train rattling over points, a clear sign that a station was approaching. The next few minutes went in a blur of flashing faces past the windows, screeching of brakes and shouting voices as bodies rushed here and there to get into the compartments. She was terrified a mob would rush into their compartment. But Ron, seeing panic rising on her face, quickly reassured her that they were in a reserve compartment and that only the four of them would occupy it. He had long since realised that this young girl was fresh off the boat and fresh to India, although she had not spoken of it. He was decent enough not to intrude more than was proper in the circumstances, and so was quick to go to the door and opening it, searched over the heads of the crowd for the man he had spotted at BT two hours before. As he had predicted, he soon saw him pushing his way through the crowds and waved to him. Rini saw the smile and the wave, and although she was reluctant to press up against the window bars because of the heaving mass of people the other side on the platform, she peered closer and saw her rather dishevelled man pushing his way through the crowd with a big grin on his face. Her heart leapt, and to her embarrassment tears flooded her, e her eyes. 
She quickly tried to wipe them away, but he was already clambering in through the wide-open door, profusely thanking Ron and shaking his hand. Well, that train journey lasted the best part of three days. Their two companions had got off at Devlali, just a couple more stations from Kapuli, and wonderfully, no other passengers entered their first-class compartment for the full journey, so it really was a honeymoon journey. They talked and talked and talked. There were 18 months to catch up on, as well as all that had happened in the last three days. The wedding on the roof of Raffia Mansell had been better than Rennie could have imagined. It had been held in the afternoon. At any other time of year it could have been unbearably hot, but a gentle post-monsoon breeze kept them all beautifully cool. Most of the guests, about thirty or so in total, were new to her, but John had introduced them all. They were mostly from the Fort Assembly, which was the church the Miss Gordons went to, and where many of John's friends went. Together they had essentially organised and arranged the whole wedding and reception. John had only arrived in Bombay just two days before the wedding, so it had all been arranged by post and by the kindness and imagination of the Miss Gordons, who had taken this young enthusiastic doctor into their hearts. They had even arranged a flat for the wedding night. It was a luxurious flat on the top floor of a neighbouring building and belonged to Mr Erskine, Erskine Scott, who was an independent scripture union worker and was now on furlough. The Miss Gordons had, especially, had been especially kind to Rini, and they were to become lifelong friends. In fact, one of their nephews, Richard Gordon, was a very close friend at Breek School years later with Rini's second son, Anthony. But that's jumping ahead about 15 years. <laughs> For the journey now, they had packed up a wonderful hamper along with a wedding cake. The boiled eggs and sandwiches and fruit of the hamper lasted the first couple of days, and then it was down to wedding cake, morning, noon and night. At last they arrived at the small town of Ludiana, where they would be staying almost a week before travelling on. As they stood on the platform, wondering what to do about the luggage left on the platform in Bombay, who should arrive, shouldering his way through the mob and grinning from ear to ear, but the same young Thomas Cook man who had met Rennie off the boat a week earlier. He'd accompanied their luggage on another train and come a shorter route, arriving six hours before them. So there on the platform was all their luggage and John's hat neatly placed on top. No wonder, years later, they still swore by Thomas Cook for all their travel arrangements. Well, Ludiana was a small but busy town in the Punjab where Winifred lived. She'd wisely decided not to accompany the honeymoon couple from Bombay, and so arrived a day or two later. But she had thoughtfully arranged for John and Rini to live in a small guest house on the compound, and at last they were able to have a little home of their own, even if it was just for the inside of a week. Winifred was the superintendent for this large women's hospital, so as her guests they were well looked after. She brought with her some of the photographs they had taken on their wedding in Bombay, and to John's delight all the negatives as well. He anticipated many relaxing winters, winters 
winter hours, experimenting in the photographic darkroom he had planned into their new home in the mountains. But that would have to wait for at least another six weeks or so, that being the time it would take to travel the rest of their journey up through Kashmir and beyond the first range of the Himalayan mountains, up the Indus Valley and on to the small town of Shiga where John had begun to build their first home.